Good morning and welcome. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're privileged to have you to join us for worship. This morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 20. And those words that we just sung, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Those words coming from Martin Luther's him, even though he was thinking of a different psalm, Psalm 46, when he wrote those words, they're really the perfect lead-in to Psalm 20 as well. God has, in fact, chosen a man to lead the church, and his success in doing that is absolutely and vitally important to all of us. This psalm, Psalm 20, I would venture to guess, probably doesn't make many, if any, lists of favorite psalms. I could probably list out some different psalms for you by number, like Psalm 1 or Psalm 8 or Psalm 23 or Psalm 51 or 119 or 139. I bet a lot of you probably hear even just those numbers and you kind of know off the top of your head what that psalm is more or less about, but not Psalm 20, I bet. It's one of the lesser known psalms, but it's very unique. It's a worship liturgy. It's really a responsive prayer, in a sense, for the king of Israel. And it's connected to Psalm 21 after it, which we'll see a little bit of. But as we read it, you young Christians, you young disciples, as you listen along here, pay attention and hear that the first part, the first five verses of this psalm, sound a lot like something else that we do in church every week. See if you can tell what part of our worship service those verses are. This is Psalm 20. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now, I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving might of His right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the King. May He answer us when we call. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, would You grant that we might understand Your Word. Enable us by Your Spirit to see and believe Your good news here, to recognize the work of Jesus at this point in history and the work of Jesus today in our midst Would you grant that we might see that and grow in your grace as we see your word given to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So you guys probably know that the old school prayer chain has gone high tech. Some of you remember the the old prayer chains that churches often used to have. You know, there's kind of a, a line of sequence of people that committed to pray for things in the church, and as soon as some prayer request was given, 
one of those persons would begin the chain and they would call the next person on the chain and tell them the prayer request and they'd call the next and so on it would go. And who knows how much prayer versus maybe how much gossip often happened in those prayer chains. I don't know. But it's gone high tech nowadays and, you know, we share our prayer requests on Facebook or maybe you tweet your prayer requests nowadays. I don't know. But you can also do it by way of a website. There are prayer request websites that you can go to and you can submit your prayer requests. I found one of them this week and took a look through it. I was just kind of curious to see what it was all about. And it evidently functions, presumably, upon the power of numbers. And the more people that are praying, the more likely your prayer request is to be answered and maybe even better than you thought. And some of the testimonials on the website homepage were these. One of them said this, with a man's picture next to it. After being unemployed for two years, I was hired at a much better job thanks to all your prayers. I now have no financial worries. Thanks. And then another one with a person's picture next to it. My business is prospering, and I know it's because of your powerful prayers. How can I ever thank you? And then another one, a young woman. Nick found God and came back to our relationship. I knew that prayer would work. We're happier than ever now. And this is the nature of the prayers on this website. I, I didn't submit a prayer request because it required your email address and a password to enter into it. I didn't want to give away my email address, and I certainly didn't want yet another password. So I didn't find out what might be in it for those who host the website. I don't know. Maybe they get $10 per prayer request. Or maybe it's just out of the goodness of their heart. Maybe they really, truly want for the power of prayer, of numbers, of people to be able to submit their requests. Who knows? I I admit, it's kind of a straw man for me to present to you those testimonials. They're on the website. I mean, they are there. Our prayers, too, can be pragmatic and simplistic and even consumeristic, as are those on that website, you know, we too can pray that way if we're not careful. Long before the Lord's Prayer taught Christians how to pray, the Psalms did it, and they did it deeply and significantly in profound ways that we would not naturally expect or derive out of our own hearts or certainly not out of our own minds and ideas. This Psalm is another perfect example of that. Because of all the people that you might consider, it may well be that the very last person you would ever think to pray for is Jesus. And that's what this psalm would have you to do. That's what this psalm is after in the scope of redemptive history. This is a liturgy for the evening before war. King David, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, penned or prepared or had prepared this liturgy for the evening before going off to battle. And here's how it would work. The people of Israel would recite together verses 1 through 5. And what are those verses made up of? Young Christians, did you notice what it was? Benedictions. There are seven in a row. Seven benedictions that are recited and prayed right there. Boom, boom, boom. May the Lord, may the Lord, may the Lord do this for you, these benedictions, these good words, these are what the people would long to see the Lord do for their king and, by extension, also for them as well. 
And then verse 6, a lone speaker chimes in. This probably was the king himself or maybe the presiding priest over the service of liturgy. And this person would join in. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. His Messiah is the word there. And some more bits of wisdom from Him. And it's all followed by a final unison petition. O Lord, save the King. This is the way that this liturgy would work. And in the Apostle John's vivid vision in Revelation 1, which you heard moments ago, John saw the King behind the king. Here this liturgy is a prayer for the king. And in its place in redemptive history, it seemed small, maybe, but it's much larger than what it was at the time of David. Because there's a king behind the king of this liturgy. There are several layers of redemptive significance to this psalm. It has a place in a particular history as the king conquers the enemy. It has a place in the broader scope of the world as the king conquers the enemy. It has a place much closer to home as well as the king conquers the enemy. One theologian helped us understand it a bit when he wrote this about the Lord's Prayer. He said, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, he wanted them to pray that he would succeed in it. And that's exactly what this psalm is after. As we work through the layers of meaning, you'll see that you're greatest prayer is to pray for the king as he's conquering the enemy in history. So this psalm has a particular historical setting. We don't know exactly what it is, but we know that it's from the time of David and the kings who followed him, you know, more or less a thousand years before the time of Christ. It's when this psalm was in play in the Israelite Psalter. And the enemy in that particular history, was anyone or anything who would threaten the establishment of the kingdom of Israel, even if it were Israel itself. Right? So God went to Abram and promised him that he would bless the world through him. Abram, this old man with an old wife, and they didn't have children nor any hope for it. God promised him, I'll give you a family, and through your family... I'll bless the whole world. He gave him a son, Isaac, who had a son, Jacob, who had 12 sons. And those 12 sons play out the drama of redemption as they, in their own jealousy and kingdom-building efforts, send the youngest of whom they're jealous, Joseph, off with the gypsies, selling him into bondage, essentially, and off he goes and ends up in Egypt. And their sin, providentially, leads their family to Egypt, to a season in a foreign land. At first, a season of provision, but eventually a season of bondage and slavery. They were slaves in the land of Egypt as a family for more years than our country has even been a country. They were there for that long. And God finally heard their cry for help, and he sent a redeemer, Moses, to lead them out, and the Gentile nations opposed them on their way to the promised land as they reached it and took it and settled there. And the historical drama of all that God is doing in creation was there in Scripture before our very eyes even now. As God called his people out of bondage and provided a place for them, he still is doing that even now. You have to remember the Bible as a whole is a narrative of the progression of the covenant of grace, and its history is building toward Jesus. 
So David proposed this, this liturgy in anticipation of an enemy, knowing that God had led Israel all along. The king, as was the custom, would be the one to lead his army out to battle, and the people would pray. This is a liturgy of prayer for the king. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May he send you help and support. May he remember your offerings in light of the reconciliation between you and him. May he grant you your heart's desire and so on and so on. May the Lord do these things for you, O king, as you go out to battle for our people. But why are the people so interested as to pray in this way? It's because their lives are wrapped up together with the king. If he wins, they win. If he loses, they lose. If he dies, they die. You know, imagine the fear of the unknown for the women and the children and the elderly who are left behind as the king and the army go out to battle. They don't have cell phones or news coverage and certainly not a reporter embedded on the front lines to report back with a satellite phone to let the people in the home front know what's going on in the war. They don't have any of that. The next news they get could be the victorious enemy army coming to take over their city, having left their king and his army dead on the battlefield. They didn't know, and so they prayed. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, there's a, a picture of this sort of incident as it happened. Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah. At this time, David and Solomon are gone. Now, when the kingdom is divided, there is a king in the north and a king in the south, Judah. His name is Jehoshaphat. And he learns that three neighboring countries have assembled a vast army united together to come and invade Judah. They've got Judah far outnumbered, triple their numbers. And so Jehoshaphat, being a godly king, a man sensitive to the Lord and his leading, gathers the people together. And the writer tells us that the people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. And King Jehoshaphat prayed to God before all of the people, working this liturgy out in a sense. He prayed to the Lord for help. And he said, we do not know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you. And the answer came. The Spirit of the Lord spoke. Don't be afraid. Go out to face these armies tomorrow and I will be with you. Now, you can imagine this liturgy taking place at that moment. The people might have pulled out Psalm 20 and begun these benedictions and the king responding, I know the Lord saves his anointed. We know in faith tomorrow we're going to go out against this vast army and the Lord will be there for us. And the next day, the invading armies had self-destructed. They had turned on themselves when the king let his army out To meet them, they lay there dead on their own battlefield. Before Israel even engaged with them, the Lord had been there with them. And then Psalm 21 follows it up. It reads very much like an answer. O Lord, the king rejoices in your strength and salvation. You've given him his heart's desire. The king trusts in the Lord. The two very much are together, a liturgy preparing for battle. This is the immediate context of this psalm, and it matters to us For this reason, Christianity is a historical religion. It is rooted deeply in the acts of God in real time and in real space. 
God covenanted with Abraham, through your family I will bless all the peoples of the earth. And then God tangibly unfolds that covenant through the events of history like this one. And so we have to recognize the importance of this conquering king over the enemy in history because what we believe about this gospel is rooted in that history. But those events themselves point to far greater things in the scheme of God's work. And so this psalm has another layer to it. And that is that your greatest prayer is to pray for the king as he's conquering the enemy in the world. Thy kingdom come, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, anytime that you pray that prayer, Every time that you pray that prayer, you are admitting and acknowledging that the kingdom of God as it comes is not just some heavenly notion out there in the clouds somewhere. It's an earthly thing. Its truth may be in God, but its reality is in the dirt, so to speak. But ever since before creation, the kingdom of God has not been alone. You know that, right? It's not been alone. It's been opposed by the kingdom of that rebel angel. From days before creation even, the kingdom of light opposed by the kingdom of darkness. There is an enemy, but you have to understand as well that these two kingdoms are not equal. The enemy is not equal to the kingdom of God. The enemy exists only as a parasite on the kingdom of God. The one existing on... the the fruit of the other. And so when Yahweh spoke creation into being, the kingdom of darkness jumped like a flea onto a dog. Essentially, that's all that it is, though powerful. The kingdom of darkness jumped like a flea onto a dog and began to suck the blood out of what God had made, tempting the, the image of God, the man and the woman, into the delusion that if they simply turned away from their Creator, they could establish their own kingdoms. And they bought it. They bought the delusion, and so there were two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Each one has its own ruler. Each one has its own people. Each one has its own desire. Each one has its own destiny, and they are diametrically opposed to each other. The kingdom of God has been coming throughout history, conquering the kingdom of darkness, and it showed itself as Israel sent its king out to war. But that king only foreshadowed a much greater king. Now you can imagine this Psalm 20 in the time of Jesus. The Psalms were, after all, Jesus' hymn book. You know, the the Bible was present in his day as the Old Testament, the New Testament, had yet to be there. Jesus' scripture was the Old Testament, and the Psalms were there. And it was the hymn book of Israel. And in Jesus' day, the line of David seemed to have run its course. There was only a a Roman puppet king in place as the Roman Empire prevailed, and Israel was sending no kings out to battle in Jesus' day. There, There was no king to work through this liturgy together with his people. It simply was, well defunct. You know, maybe this psalm was collecting dust on the back closet shelf in the storage at the temple because it simply wasn't needed anymore. There wasn't a king going out to battle. 
But this psalm was not defunct. Because Jesus had come and he went out to face the king of darkness, being tempted in the wilderness. He faced him down and then he came preaching in public. And and you remember the first thing that Jesus began to preach. What was it? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then when his ministry had begun in earnest, Jesus went into the temple on Sabbath worship, as was his custom, and he took the scroll from the, the reader and he read from the book of Isaiah in the hearing of everyone, he read these words, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These are things all that a king would do. And then you know what he did. He, he sat down and he began to speak. It was the custom. A, a, a rabbi would read the scripture and then he would speak. He would teach from it. And Jesus had one simple lesson to give them. He sat down and he said this. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The people marveled at it, which makes me wonder if they really understood what he meant. I don't think they did. Because if they understood what he really meant, they probably would have taken him out and stoned him to death because he was claiming to be king. He was simply saying, today, what you've just heard, read from Isaiah, you know those words, people. These are the actions of a king. Today, the king is here. He sits among you, and he is I. I am He. I am the King of whom Isaiah was speaking. The people didn't realize it at the time, but Psalm 20 came off the shelf on that day. It came back into play because the King of Peace had come to win a war. The enemy was no longer the Canaanites or the Moabites or the Perizzites or the Mosquito Bites. It was none of those anymore. The enemy, rather, was sin and death and the devil himself. And so this psalm took on a brand new meaning. The king is going out to battle, and may he succeed as he does so. So your prayer for Jesus is this. May God be with you. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the Lord protect you and support you as you go out to battle on our behalf. May the Lord give you your heart's desire. This is our prayer for the king as he goes, because the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. And in this he must succeed. But there's some irony in all these benedictions as they unfold. You know, think about how these benedictions were fulfilled in the life of Jesus, if you get particular about them. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. When Jesus had gone out to be tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Satan offered him all kinds of things. He he told Jesus... Take that stone and turn it into bread, man. Why would you starve yourself to death out here in the wilderness? You can do that. And he said to Jesus, throw yourself down off this temple because the angels of God will not let you be harmed. And he said, if you'll just bow down to me, Jesus, then I'll give you authority over all of this world that I have at my disposal. And every time Satan offered him one of these suggestions, what did Jesus do? But he appealed to the name of the God of Jacob. He appealed to his Father in heaven and to the words of God. The name of God did protect him. 
Or may he send you help and support, this psalm says. When the devil left him, Matthew tells us that angels came and attended to him. He was so exhausted. God did send him help and support. Or may he remember your offerings with favor, the psalm says. What was Jesus offering to the Father? It was himself. He gave himself and his own very life. And when God introduced him to uh, the disciples in, 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 in his, his presentation, the Lord said from heaven, This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. I, I accept him and his offering. Or may he grant your heart's desire. In John 17, Jesus prays this long prayer, the high priestly prayer, we call it. And, and he makes all kinds of requests for his people, including, Lord, sanctify these, my disciples, with your word. And for ages and ages now, the Father has been sanctifying the people of God with his word. These benedictions were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. The king has come. The battle has begun. The benedictions are true. And the kingdom of God is here. You know, it comes in big ways and in little ways. You think of some of the ways. You know, the Thrive Women's Clinic here in Dallas. The kingdom of God is coming as those volunteers and people work and act and pray for the preservation of the life of little ones. And when they take in a pregnant mother and persuade her of the value of the life of their little one, the kingdom of God has come. Or when a prison inmate who was wrongly convicted of some crime years ago, this is happening more and more now, isn't it? It's fascinating to see it happen. When he's exonerated of this wrongful conviction and his life is now spared, the kingdom of God has come because justice has prevailed. Or even as simple as when a school teacher finally breaks through to a difficult student and that student finally begins to recognize how to and to love to learn, the kingdom of God has come. But sometimes it just doesn't feel like it's coming at all. Did you all see the Pew Research poll in the newspaper this past week? There's been a a poll regarding religion in the United States and, and the title of it is America's Changing Religious Landscape. And the findings were basically this, that since 2007 until now, the number of Christians as a percentage of the population of this country has declined from 78% to 70%. Now, that sounds really optimistic to me. I don't know about you. In the first place, I I can't imagine there are that many Christians, but, but, but people professing to be Christians, anyway, have dropped from 78 to 70%. And there was all kinds of buzz on the internet, blogs and posts and, and comments about this poll and its findings. The, the Christians that I know of that commented on it were just kind of up in arms. Oh, that's skewed. Those numbers reflect the mainline church and those people aren't Christians anyway. Did you see that? And, you know, the evangelical church has increased in numbers. All kinds of explaining around it. And, and others who are not so friendly, perhaps, to the church are excited to see, you know, see, it's declining. That stuff isn't really true anyway. All kinds of political sort of buzz even about it. You know, we as American Christians tend to default to think that it's the kingdom of conservatism versus the kingdom of liberalism. And a, 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 a poll like that shows how we, we, in fear, default to that way of thinking, and it's really so petty. 
But you see a poll like that, and maybe you begin to think, is the kingdom of God retreating? If the number of Christians in this country is diminishing, it's going the wrong direction. Maybe the kingdom of God isn't coming at all. I would say no. Maybe it's that in this country, we don't need the kingdom of God so much because we've built the kingdom of America. And so, you know, as a population, we don't tend to feel the need for a new kingdom, for a greater kingdom. This one is really pretty great. But the point is that the kingdom of God is not America dependent. And and we know that, don't we? The king is conquering the enemy in the entire world. And as we recognize, as we saw a week or two ago, that that the persecution of the church is increasing in this century more than any other. More martyrs, more people killed for their faith already in the first 15 years of this century than in any other century previous. And what happens to the church historically when that happens? The church explodes. It thrives under the persecution. God is building His church in the entire world, conquering the enemy And we're to pray for his success even when it seems like a lost cause, as it did in the time of Jesus. You know, the irony of these benedictions is that they were just partially fulfilled for him. I skipped the first one. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. I was trying to think, how did that one get fulfilled in the life of Jesus? Was it maybe when he and the disciples were out on the stormy lake and they were afraid for their lives and Jesus appealed to God, and God in the day of trouble heard him, but no, because if you go back there and look and see what Jesus did, he didn't appeal to the Father. He simply stood up in the boat and said, calm down, and it did. He didn't need to appeal to Yahweh for that, or maybe it was the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, that was kind of a day of trouble. All these people are hungry. They're out here. They want to hear you teach, but they're hungry. What are they going to do? We don't have any food for them, but no. Same thing. He didn't appeal to the Father for that. He simply said, look, guys, how many loaves of bread you got? How many fish? Give thanks. Pass it out. It's enough. That's all he did. He didn't appeal to God for that. But on the night of his betrayal, as he was praying in the garden, what did he say? He said, Father, take this cup from me. As he was sweating as though drops of blood, Father, take this cup from me. Let it pass. On the day of trouble, on the night of trouble, he appealed to the Father. And what answer did he get? Silence. Not a thing. The king appealed to the Lord on the day of trouble, and the Lord did not answer him. Rather, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Luke tells us, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men because it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And so this king, hanging on the cross, appealed to another psalm when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He offered himself up as a reconciling sacrifice, as the king behind the king, so that we might have another benediction. He took upon himself the malediction, the bad word, so that we could have the benediction of verse 5. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of God set up our banners. This is what we get in return. There were no people gathered to pray this liturgy for Jesus as he went out to battle, even as he initiated the reality of this psalm in the world. 
And so this psalm has another layer. And that is that your greatest prayer is to pray for the king as he's conquering the enemy in you. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This psalm corresponds to the Lord's prayer in that it's a prayer that the conquering king would successfully root out the evil of your own heart because you want to set up your own kingdom. If you're like me, and you are, you're a little kingdom builder. You establish your own kingdom in your own sorts of ways. Now, notice how the king responds to the benedictions in verse 6 here. He says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He'll answer him with the might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. In the historical setting of this psalm, the enemy built the enemy's kingdom with chariots and horses. Literally, those were the the power vehicles of ancient war. If you had horses and chariots, you won against another army that didn't. They used the, the tools of power to build their kingdoms. In the world, more broadly... The enemy builds his kingdom, how? With intimidation, with fear, with money, with power, the tools of power. The kingdom builds, uh, the enemy builds his kingdom in the world. But what about you? What about you and me? I mean, how do we build our little kingdoms? What chariots and horses do you trust in? Are you not satisfied maybe that the plan for God's kingdom is that it comes through prayer and proclamation and love. And therefore, you juice it up with politics and entertainment and picket lines. That's what Christians often do. Chariots and horses. Maybe you're not satisfied that the purpose of God's kingdom is to bring all of the ordinary parts of life under His sovereign rule. All of the ordinary, everyday, mundane parts of life under His rule. You're not satisfied with that, and so you stress yourself to overachieve and to prove your worth to whomever might be watching at whatever time they might give you credit for it. Chariots and horses. Or maybe you're not satisfied that the progress of God's kingdom is already, but not yet. It's not here in its fullness. It's it's not here completely We see things like a poll saying Christianity is dying. We see things like persecution. Christians are dying. And we begin to wonder, is it coming at all? It's already here, the Bible says, but it's not yet here. That's just not good enough for me. Maybe you're not satisfied with that. And so with impatience, you begin to look around and hope that there's something better, something quicker, something more gratifying in the immediate sense. Chariots and horses. Why? Why would you trust in chariots and horses? Why would I do that? Because I do. And may Jesus have success as he conquers this kingdom in my own life. Why do we do that? It's because just like the first man and woman, you've bought into the delusion that you too can build a kingdom apart from your creator. But the Lord loves you too much to leave you to your petty throne.
And so he's given us this prayer. It's really the greatest prayer that you can pray. May the king have success. Because when he conquers in history, when he conquers in the world, and when he conquers in you, you live in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that you would grant that we might believe and that we might truly turn away from our own little kingdoms and trust instead in you as you have provided for us in the victory of Jesus as he's gone out as our king and conquered any and all of your and our enemies. And we pray in his name. Amen.